The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Thank you for listening to Spin, the Rally Pod, brought to you by Dirtfish Rally School. For your chance to experience life behind the wheel of a rally car, head to drive.dirtfish.com to find the course that's right for you. What are you waiting for? We're right here waiting for you. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Spin the Rally Pod, episode 199. Yes, we've nearly made the double ton. Not quite yet. Not quite yet. Uh, many a slip, twixt cup and lip, as they say. I'm Lisa O'Sullivan, your rally fan, guiding you through this with a reduced but quality cast this afternoon, this morning. Mr. George Donaldson, former motorsport det- uh, detective. Let's try that again. <laughs> former motor, <laughs> former motorsport team boss is in the house. Good morning, George. Good morning, Lisa. Well, uh, absolutely. Um Murder on the Monte Carlo Rally, like the Orient Express, only more exciting, I think. And I, I think you were right first time anyway, Lise. He was always a detective. <laughs> he is always a detective and will be carrying out some of his detective skills for us very, very shortly. But of course, the other voice you've just heard there is Mr. Head of Media at Dirtfish.com, David Evans. Morning, David. Good morning. Good morning, all. Well, both of you. Yeah, it is a, a reduced cast, isn't it? Still, it we is, can have fun. It is. There's Lots thousands of other about. people listening in, though, David, yes. to talk to them instead. I know you like a big audience. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, obviously. Yeah, we're, we're kind of in, the, in, in limbo at the moment because we're not quite ready to start our focus on Chile, which, David, you'll be heading out to Chile for that event. And then I'm going out a couple of weeks later for the Pan American Games. Oh, wow. So, um, Where are you going? Kind of mistimed uh, Santiago. Ah, that's an amazing yeah, place. But I have to say, I was. I'm I, very much looking forward it, to it's it. It's one of the places I always wanted to go, simply because you literally pop over the Andes uh, and drop down, and you're in there. Uh, and it was it was a very very impressive city. I spent the day in there with our Italian journalist friend Marco Giordo, uh, and yeah, it was just a wee bit. Dis- I don't think we found the right area because we seemed to end up in Starbucks for elevensies mm. and Starbucks for lunch. And then Starbucks well, afternoon tea. I have I had another colleague who has sent me a whole list of things that I need to try, yeah. having spent some time in in South America. And actually, if anybody's listening there at Dirtfish Rally, and you've got any Starbucks. tips, <laughs> no, it doesn't do it for me. At uh, at Dirtfish Rally, send me some tips. What I should uh, do while I'm in Santiago? What do I eat? What do I drink? I'd love to go up to the Atacama Desert. I'd love to go to the Marble Ponds. I'd love to just do so much in the country, but that's going to have to wait. I'll come back for that. But anyway, as I say, Chile's a little further down the line we are going to review a little bit of Greece because George you didn't get a chance because David and Colin love to do their road trip little (laughs) bit to sum up the event and they don't let us play so um, I'm giving you the uh, the helm here because uh, I mean Greece Greece you know the the car breaker well, it's how, tough, how tough was it? It certainly was a little bit tough this year, um, but that was due to to you know a weather event, which is you know not, not unprecedented, but actually particularly unusual for sure. Uh, you know, massive rains, uh, you know, four days of thunderstorm basically. I mean, those were were absolutely massive amounts of rain. I think up to hundred and fifty millimeters in some places in in mm. uh, yeah. within within that very short period of time. So. Yeah, it's going to affect any road anywhere. But of course, it, it it did have a silver lining because they had huge forest fires, and fortunately, that rain was massively widespread, so it damped all that down. So in one way, it saved the rally, it, but it made things a little bit rough. The, the organisers, as already well documented in uh, in David and Collins' uh, podcast from last week, did an amazing job of recovering it. And what it did was it gave us a tough rally, an exciting event with unexpected uh, hazards on the road. And, uh, you know, Thierry Neuvel obviously uh, smacked into one. You can look at it on the video. It doesn't even honestly look that bad. He wasn't offline. Uh, 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 Sebastian Ogier hit exactly the same one. And, mm. and, it was uh, a hole, it was, wasn't it, George, I think? Yeah, it was, it was a hole. It was a hole, basically, yeah. um, that, had, that had dug out. And uh, 
it just caught them out. So yeah, from that point of view, there was a lot of extra hazards. That that was, I think, envisaged, envisaged, and I'm sure the the, the teams had discussed that in their strategy meetings. Um, I'm sure they had, uh, but well, you'd like to think they had because that's what they employed uh, employ people like me for um, to 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 be able to you know, sort of look at all those options. And, and I know that mm. Toyota are very, very detailed. They've got uh, they've got their legions of people with their peripheral vision on, on out on stocks, making sure they catch those. But even at that, they didn't uh, manage to it, catch them all. But It is difficult, though, George, these days, because, don't you know, when you were perhaps doing it, I'm sure there would have been more availability to do the recce. But there's one, there's, nowadays, there's only one, engineers car that can do the engineers recce so each team has one car uh with four people in it and this was something that really kind of irked Thierry Matty because when he started as team principal a few years ago he was there was I think it, it certainly wasn't open but it wasn't quite such a tight restriction on how many people from each team could do the recce so Thierry Matty would always go out and drive the roads but of course now he can't because well if you've got it's, four it's, cars you've got four I, I think it well, was the start of last year. Uh, it, was it, it was pushed for by the teams, so it, yeah, it wasn't. It's a, it's it wasn't FIA, FIA and the WRC. In fairness to the FIA here, FIA changed the rules in conjunction with the teams. They don't arbitrarily just push these things in unless it's a safety matter. No, so that was, was, it, was a, it was a way of reducing the cost. But the point is, <clears throat> not everybody does quite such a. Not everybody gets quite such a good look at the roads. Uh, as they did, and the big, big, big feature of Acropolis just passed, which I'm, pr- I'm sure you would have experienced this, George. But after the recce, the roads still changed so much because of the of the water. Everybody always says it's the worst it's ever been. Of course, we've seen rain like it before, but not for a long, long time. And certainly, some of the rocks that were moved were moved simply by the volume of water coming down the roads. Um, and and that sort of the big feature of this was that the organisers were so concerned about the, the, the evolution of the road after the recce, they sent a car through in, in conjunction with the teams. They sent their own car, video car through, recorded all of the road, and then issued um, an, a stage video, an onboard video, um, before every... So they got... On Thursday night, they got Fridays. Friday night, they got Saturdays, blah, blah, blah. So it it really added extra work for everybody in the team including the co-drivers um who they all now had to sit and watch and just check notes and just have a look have you have you seen have you seen that before george that they sent videos maybe it, I mean, it was well, there was still gravel I crews think, for you though i think there was still gravel crews uh, yeah. which was a was a, a a really a really good shout and again it's a cost yeah. saving but in in terms of you know it, it, it seems a little bit rich to be Saving saving the costs of a couple of people going to a rally when you're when you're spending you know five hundred thousand pounds extra on a car, yeah. uh, well, you know, for instance, I'm, or or even even more than that. I think I think there's a, a, a I don't know I don't know quite what you would call it, a dichotomy in the whole thing. I don't I, I really think contradiction. it's a little bit yes yeah, yeah. absolute contradiction in in in, in reality here. But I, I've, um, for me, George, just to, and last time I'll interrupt you. I'm really sorry about this. But no, I'm no, interested it's okay. to get your it's take on this. I've always said gravel crews should stay because ultimately mm-hmm. your recce cars there that they're going to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. It means flying out two extra people per crew. Most of the crews, yeah. I don't know, they probably do already pay, or they would probably pay uh, for those two people to come out. Um, it's three or four days work, and yeah. ultimately they're, they're providing. A, it's not a performance gain; okay. it's a safety thing. And Expe- well, the expertise it, they it, usually it, bring as well is is it, massive, isn't it? And and mm. all it takes is for them to save one written off car, and yep. you know that's a million euros saved. Bang! Yep. You know, for yep. me, it just seems ridiculous that we allow them on on tarmac rallies, mm-hmm. but not on gravel rallies. And you know, well, all of that. Yeah. Sorry, so that was my point. What do you think, George? Well, I think, uh, first of all, uh, it would be a bad idea if the drivers paid them because um, we can see what happens if the drivers pay them when you go to Kenya (laughs) earlier this year. So the teams should pay them. And I mean, I obviously ran gravel crews for many years as a a team manager. And I'll hark back to my time at Toyota where effectively I was 
properly in charge of of the whole spectrum of the event. Um, and and you know the gravel crews were were they were brilliant and they were difficult at the same time. You had to always make sure they weren't going to be lazy. I mean, they were employed by people like Carlos Sainz and appointed by people like Carlos Sainz and Didi Oriol, very, very, very demanding drivers. But that wouldn't Could stop them necessarily Carlos taking Sainz shortcuts. Ever letting anybody be lazy? <laughs> well, <laughs> it, 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 it did. It did happen from time to time because we did the briefing with them, um, uh, and you know, we did the briefing as a team. You know, with the co-drivers and myself. And the gravel crews, we decided what we were doing. We had the tire people involved to make sure we got the tire decisions at the right time. And Monte Carlo, it was it was super critical that people didn't go too early. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I had an occasion where we 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 lost one car and nearly lost the second car on the first stage of Monte Carlo rally because the gravel crew wanted to go early so they could stop for a coffee afterwards. And they went and wow. they went an hour and a half earlier than they should have done. <laughs> of course, it wasn't icy when they went over. It was icy later bang two cars but no gravel crews gravel crews would solve that problem and you, you say it's just for one event and um, they also take up a, a fair workload off the co-driver uh, which yeah. i think these yeah. days would be a good thing uh, it's, it's getting tougher in those cars you know they're smaller inside they're hotter they're more difficult they are very very fast now they're a, a fantastic spectacle certainly um, and they're lovely and safe, but but they're also less comfortable, which makes it a bigger strain for the crew inside. Um, and we're asking them to do an awful lot. And then to see them in between the stages, just looking at their telephones when they could actually be taking a breather, composing themselves. Although you could argue that looking at the stage that's just about to come is is not uh, not exactly a distraction. But I'm just saying that there's a little bit uh, a little bit more to it than that by way of preparation so yeah gravel crew brilliant need to be well managed absolutely cost utterly minimal um uh, and i mean there's some great characters there you know and and uh, and lisa as you said a massive amount of experience being brought into a team a bit of nice as long as the team is configured to handle that uh, all that extra input sometimes that extra input ends up being that the you know the gravel crew whispers in the driver's ear the driver whispers to the tire guy and and wants a different tire than the team has decided and the briefings can go a bit west a bit well, then, like but the, then that's just, that's about team management isn't it that yeah. is absolutely so, yeah. about team management and and you know you've got that you've got good input and it comes in a particular way in a disciplined fashion and that's the way it's managed and then you play the numbers game and the numbers game always works mm. you know i hate I, I don't like accountancy but i do like numbers numbers games work so that's it Call me you know, the rain man. <laughs> I want to kind of well, drag us back to the actual the toughness of Greece because I remember one rally Greece and I can't remember what year it was, but do you remember when we had the night stage and it was dusty and oh, yeah. um, Petter ended up getting lost in the dust and going the wrong way down and had to turn around and come back the other way um, because of, just because the conditions were so tough. It is a rally that genuinely will provide some kind of excitement, but it, it must have been so different way back when, George, when you first started out? Well, well, well I, I first went to Greece in 1984 as a spectator. I, myself and a friend, Brian Miller, we, we got ourselves on a flight and I think it was, it must have been, it must have been Greece Airlines, I guess. I, I can't remember how we got there, but anyway, Olympic we stopped down Hela, at, uh, Hellas? Was it Camina Vula, just south of, just south mm. of Athens? Camina Vula uh, was the start. Okay. Camina Vula was north, it, I think. Was it, it north? So it's not Camina Vula. I can't remember the name of the little, the little place just to the south of Athens, uh, where where the rally used to start, and it ran some stages around above Athens, right around the, the 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 rim of the mountains, off to the off to the east of Athens. It was fantastic. I remember going up there to watch a stage, and we were just racing around the country trying to keep up with the rally. It was really hard. But it was what was good was when you came somewhere, you know, had a really, 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 really rudimentary map. Most of the road signs were just in, in you know, Greek Greek alphabet. So quite hard to really read it. You have to do a, 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 a sort of phonetic All Greek comparison to you, in it. All Greek to me. But then you would realise that somewhere up there, I think, is a stage. And then all of a sudden you would see these cars darting off on these gravel roads. And of course, being from, from Scotland, from Britain, you didn't really go on to private forest roads. You'd get into trouble or you'd come against a locked gate and you wouldn't you wouldn't get to where you're going to. So but we locked in, we said, I just go for it, Brian. So Brian was driving, I was navigating, and off we went up this hill and we must have driven three or four kilometers and we came to another stage and and that's how we went. 
uh, we, we flew around the, the countryside like that. But that was the first event for the, the first uh, gravel event for the Peugeot 205 T16. And yeah. both of those cars, both of those cars failed, but they didn't fail until maybe the second or third day that they failed. I think uh, it was, that was, um, that was obviously Ari Vatnin and Jean-Pierre Nicola driving what, those cars. What failed on them? I think they just broke. Uh, it was a it was a long <laughs> rough event. A, a long rough event. That's in 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 some ways, George. That's one thing I still find quite surprising is because my the, the view of kind of Group B is these supercars that are that are lightweight and incredible carbon fiber bodies, all that blah blah blah. And and you kind of think they must have been quite fragile. And to actually get Group B cars through an Acropolis, Safari was different, wasn't it? Because, you know, you built a Safari car. But uh, Acropolis, I was always surprised. And and you, you were never too surprised to still see, like, a, I don't know, a, 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 an Ascona or a Manta 400 well up there because, you know, they were just durable and rugged, weren't they? Or a Nissan 240RS. Yeah, like yeah. It was hundred percent like that. That was also the first, the very first event I think for the, for the short quattro. So, uh, and I remember watching them at a, a place called Kalambaka, which is the famous monastery that had the gravel road going round it. You used to get the photograph with the monastery on the big rock. Yes, yeah, the, big, yeah. the big sort of basalt column or whatever yeah. it was. And uh, I remember as we sort of got there to spectate, and we were below it, and you could see a fair bit of it, and I. My, my friend Brian, he stopped there. I said, I'm just going to go up and try and get a photograph from further up. And I fought my way through bushes and I thought, you know, but be up in there. And I popped out into this little clearing. There was only one other person there. And it was Hugh Bishop, <laughs> of all people. <laughs> Hugh Bishop, the, the legend, a legendary sadly, photographer, uh, mm. very sadly indeed. Uh, but he was he was sat in there. So I knew I'd got to the right place. <laughs> but that was my first time that I actually sort of took my camera out and tried to photograph these incredible cars. And my first those pictures. I've got the, uh, the, the, the I will have them, David. But sadly, the the cars were going so blindingly quick. It's a quick a, a quick right left uh, uh, corner, and uh, with with the monastery right in the back. Um, basically, the short quarter. I was so gobsmacked by it. Uh, literally, what I think I got the front of the Quattro and I got the back of the two hundred five T sixteen and the few <laughs> photographs I got. I, I got, I got, I got. My anticipation got better, but it was so much faster than anything I'd seen before. I would have been watching, you know, the the British Open Championship, where you would see, you know, you'd see the the likes of Ari Vatnin and, and and all sorts and their their mantas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This was the first time for me seeing the factory, the proper factory Quattros on another World Championship wow. event that wasn't the REC. And and the, the speed was just gobsmacking, and the roughness of it as well. And then you you did you know around Itia you did you know you came down through the Karut stage as sometimes it's called box out way, coming. I remember seeing the cars at the finish of that, and then racing through Itia, and out the other side heading heading back down towards Athens. The cars were doing asphalt stages on the old asphalt road. They built a lovely new road there. Must have been wow. about forty years ago now, and they were using the old road as tarmac stages. They weren't very long; they were just nine or ten kilometers. But of course, the cars were fitting asphalt tires, proper you know tarmac tires for mm. those stages, and then going off again into the into the forest on the next stage on gravel tires, service after every stage. Um, wow. And it was it was absolutely brilliant. Rough. I cannot remember how rough it was back then, but it was quite an adventure to go away following a rally like that. Staying in some, just finding hotels in little towns that were really very rough, um, but they were nice yeah. and cheap. And you know, we, we weren't in, in bed for long anyway. We were off, you know, super because the rally kind of kept going. You only got you know four or five hours sleep a night, and I think in it was the shower. That's all you need. Four or five days. Um, we 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 actually went there because uh, Fred Gallagher was navigating for John Buffum, uh, so we had a bit of an in. Um, so Fred had got us a couple of maps and everything. It was literally not not much more than organisers' maps, but a little bit of marking and guidance from Fred on it. And uh, and then of course I think John Buffon finished fourth, which was probably just about his best ever WRC uh, result. Yeah, for sure. Outside of America, that's impressive. But you you can't kind of overestimate either how difficult it was to navigate around. You said there briefly, George, about you know the Greek alphabet and stuff, but we don't know we're born now with sat now yeah. and, and... Oh, well yeah 
David, when I when I did my first service plan, the service plans for Greece Rally were were always huge. You'd have you'd have fourteen service crews to cover it because it was it, it went away around, and and it was so hard to get from point A to point B. You know, you maybe yeah. just get some service crews would get one point a day, and you'd come into junk you'd come to junctions in the middle of the you know the middle of those mountains that you were driving in with Colin. You'd come to a junction, no road signs at all, maybe one sign for a quarry. And I went in there. I did a week, a week service recce, which turned into nine days. And I had, I actually had Yuha uh, Purinen with me, who knew the way around. And uh, without that, I don't think I'd have made, I'd, I'd, I'd have struggled to to make it. But I learned it in that first year to find all. I knew some of the roads because I'd obviously serviced on them many years. But now I had to actually find my way. And I made a a, a beautiful um, series of road books up so that our crews could could get up. I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, two hundred page road books we we made up for the yeah. service route just for the service route. It was great fun doing it. I mean, I had a, had a lovely time. But you were up at, you know, you were up before dawn and you weren't uh, you weren't stopping at night until you just went to bed. It was flat out, but just brilliant to do it. But so hard. And sometimes you know you'd be way up a road and nope, this isn't right. This can't be right. Come back. And actually, that recce, so that was about my fifth or sixth uh, Acropolis rally. That recce that I did with Yuha, that was the first time I experienced rain in Greece. Really? And it, yeah. And snow. It's, I've got snow and rain. <laughs> um, uh, but that when I when I experienced the rain, I thought, oh, this should be fun because it, everyone says how slippery it is. And I was literally driving up a straight road heading for a corner when the little jeep I had, it was some little, I don't know what jeep, it would be a Korean thing or something, it started to go sideways up the main road. And it was not a powerful car. Um, <laughs> it literally, so I, I put it into four-wheel drive thinking that, that'll be better. Um, and then, then it just started to drift sideways in four-wheel drive. It was so slippery. And I came to the first, the first corner I came to, uh, I, I'd slowed right down to maybe 15, 20 miles an hour and I was still sideways. A car came spinning around the corner in front of me, and right into the side of the road, and some concrete at the side of the road. not fast, but smashed into it. And there's three other cars pirouetting up the road in front of me, God. and I was dodging between them. And that was up. But it's, it's, it's the marble in the road, isn't it? They, it they is, actually. It's the marble. Yeah. I mean, you can't imagine how that polishes. All rallying, one source. By now, you know that Dirtfish.com is the place to go for all of your rallying news. But when it's time to try your hand behind the wheel, just join us here at Dirtfish Rally School, nestled in the Cascade Mountains in Snoqualmie, Washington. Whether you're a pro seeking extra seat time or a novice looking to get started, we've got programs tailored to all rallying needs. And when you want to watch the best in the world, just head over to our YouTube channel. Our coverage of the WRC and American rallying is second to none. Follow us at Dirtfish Rally across all social media platforms and shop the latest looks in our merchandise store now. As always, rally on. David, tell us about Pirelli's decision to withdraw from the WRC. The news came through on Saturday morning. Uh, there'd been an awful lot of kind of back and forth about what what would Pirelli be doing, and we were trying to find out some more in Greece, and, and they were very tight-lipped about everything, which generally they're, they're not going to be if, if they are going to, um, to tender again. But... Yep, that's that's the end of Pirelli at the top of the WRC. I think I'm probably the end of Pirelli in the WRC because the new um, whoever gets the new contract from 2025 to 2027 will supply all of the four wheel drive cars. So obviously now the junior category is is four wheel drive as well. So they'll supply all of those. Um, so yeah, it's it's for me it's a real shame. Um, I. <laughs> I've always enjoyed working with Pirelli. They're, you know, they're a company with great, great history, uh, and the likes of Terenzio Testoni and, and Mario Isola, just absolute legends. Of course, going back, it would have been Paul Hembry who was the the motorsport director when I first started, and and Hembers still, you know, you consider the guy a friend. He's just the most amazing fellow. We need to get Paul Hembry on the podcast um, and get him absolutely uh, yes talking through some memories, but. At the moment, we don't know exactly what is going on. We will. We, the announcement comes at World Council, which is October the nineteenth. We know for sure there's no Pirelli. I am increasingly Do we know the sure. Reason? We don't have any any idea about the reason. I think the 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 reason is there's obviously 
pressure, I don't know if pressure is the right word, they are looking to continue in Formula One. Um, and my understanding probably is that it's a, it's a cost thing. Uh, you know, it's it's not it's not cheap to run two um, two control at, at such high level, uh, two high profile control tire supply deals. Um, at the same time, has it been the smoothest of, of of passages for for Pirelli? I'm not sure. You know, it's running on Rally One cars for the first time. It's been difficult, and obviously, there's been some drivers have been fairly vocal about about the tyres. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I would imagine it's it's a commercial decision um, that that they've taken, and it's not the end. You know, Pirelli will remain uh, in the European Championship. They won, obviously, uh, ERC with Hayden Padden this year, and and if Hayden's back, I'm sure he'll defend his title with with Pirelli. It's not the end for them uh, by any means. Uh, they they remain committed to to rallying in domestic championships and regional championships as we say uh, but for me so that as i was saying pirelli definitely not we are pretty certain that mrf aren't going to be tendering or haven't tendered the tender closed on friday at midnight munich time um and everybody in mrf seems to have gone to ground uh, and again you know if they had tendered if they put their documentation in they would be telling us about it uh, on or on off the record, there, there would be some chatter about it. Nothing. So I, I am of the understanding that MRF hasn't uh, tendered. So the two that we do know uh, is Michelin, which was a little bit of a surprise, quite a late, uh, a late bid from them. We saw representatives of Michelin in 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 Acropolis, and of course Hancock. Uh, so it it looks like it's going to be a two horse race. Um, but yeah. So uh, either way. Whoever wins Michelin, great history, incredible product, um, and it'd be fabulous to welcome them back. Hancock, again, really strong product, um, and potentially a new market, um, some exciting new brand coming in. It, either way, I think the championship can win now. Uh, yeah, it's a shame. From my side, this and and in the brief for this pod, I I did write that that I wanted to to talk to George about. Tire wars, tire wars yeah. right now. It's they're unsustainable. Tire wars, yeah. We we know yeah. that <laughs> the days of of tire companies testing for for days and days on end and then taking four or five hundred tires out to each round, those days are gone. That's for one factory team, by the way. Those days are gone. But George, they were great days when you you would have run obviously with both Michelin and with with Pirelli. Yes, yes. I remember. I think the first uh, must have been the first six years, six or seven, seven years with Toyota that I was there. It was Pirelli, and uh, you know, we, I think for 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 quite a while we were the only ones running Pirelli. Um, um, uh, Lancia were running Michelin oh. on their cars, so it was oddly enough, and it was it was just a t- tremendous uh, small small team from the Pirelli guys, but just so brilliant, such, such a lot of fun with them. They were very much part of the team. It was one team, so we had our own four or five. Uh, uh, Pirelli tire fitters, and we didn't have four or five hundred tires with us. Uh, David, we had three or four thousand. <laughs> <laughs> what was I thinking of? Silly David. Silly Seriously, David. I mean, it, gen- it genuinely could have been that many. It, it, wow, was, it, was, a, it was a heck of a lot of tires. Do you remember George? Right? I think it was Michelin that bought Moose first, wasn't it? It was Emmy. It was called. Uh, it was yeah. Michelin, and yeah. then Pirelli bought it their was. version, but. That I mean, how yeah. on earth could you, if you weren't on Michelin's, how could you combat that? Because for for the readers um, who are who who are, don't have quite such long memories, Moose basically was it was uh, if you punctured the tire, the Moose immediately exploded in the tire and filled the hole. So basically, you could drive those tires over pretty much anything, couldn't you? Mm-hmm. It, was, it was sort of it, it was like an it was like an inner tube. Um, um, Basically, I can't remember if it was one piece or whether it was whether there was a break in it, but it sat inside the tire, um, and 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 it 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 took away it 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 detracted from the tire's performance. Make no mistake about that, because as they heated up, they they put pressure into the tires, um, so and they took away some of the dynamic. You would get all sorts of problems with them, and then all, all, also the moose could fail itself. It would all effectively end up going across to one side, and you'd end up with a, a wheel massively out of balance. So there was pluses and minuses on it, uh, but it was very hard to compete against Michelin. And when they got their 
when they got their Emmy sorted out um, uh, before Pirelli did. Mm. Pirelli came with their moose, and, and um, it wasn't it wasn't as good as the Emmy initially. I think latterly it probably was, but but like I say, it took away from the the dynamics of the tire. But uh, a puncture, uh, you know, a few a few seconds per stage, um, is is nothing compared to losing two minutes to change or like say 90 seconds or two minutes to change a tire and um, you, need, you need to do a heck of a lot of stages for that to offset so you could take a chance on the rough rally if you always ran boosts and um, but like i said there was some failures with that as well it cost you time so it was a yeah. tough one it was and it I, I remember pirellis were always seemed to be stronger on wet gravel so whenever it came to yeah. an RAC or a yeah. Rally GV, there was uh, always a small advantage yeah. just in the chemistry of the style. I think it was. I mean, you know, you've got. To, I've never been to the the Michelin factory. It's something that I deeply regret never having got there. But I've been. I, I was invited by by Paul Hembry on a couple of occasions, and I got the factory tour down in uh, in Turin, isn't it? It's Turin, and um, Milan. Milan, sorry, in Milan. I always forget which one's which. Turin's on the right, Milan's on the left, isn't it? That correct? Would you look at the map? Other way round. As you look at the map, Other way Milan on the right, so, Turin on the right. Right, so it was, it was, I was right. It was Turin where we, where we went to then. <laughs> so that's where we went to for the factory. And we did the factory tour now, but it was at the weekend, as I recall, or a holiday. So there wasn't anybody in. Well, there was, well, there was a few people in because they were still working. They were still doing all the tyre development there. And he was explaining to us that there are something, at that time, there was something like 500 chemists employed by Pirelli to work out compounds. And, well, I mean, maybe that was engineers as well, tyre construction. I mean, the laminations and the, 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 the way that a tyre works is an increase. It's one of the most fantastic dynamic things on any car. And what you've got to remember, and, and, and just to underline this, and I mean, I'm a big fan of tyres. How I never ended up working for Pirelli or Michelin, I don't know, because I just love them to bits. But not the, too late, uh, George. Not too not late. Too, never, never too late, no. no. But you, you, what you've got to understand is that, that uh, those Group B cars, we had 600 horsepower. Now, the suspension wasn't great. And the tyres were fine, you know, they, they seemed good. But within two years of going to Group A, cars that probably had 200, 250 horsepower less, the suspension wasn't significantly better. Those cars were faster than the Group B cars on the same stages. And that was down to tyres. Tyre development and the ability of tyres to, to offer extra and to, to, to give unbelievable gains they are just probably the most marvellous technological aspect of a car. Just amazing. Yeah. I know it sounds really, really boring, but actually I would love Pirelli to make a film or, or Michelin or somebody to make a film of just how smart these tyres are and how they developed, you know, what, what, they, what they came to. Just quite amazing. I think we'd send you off to do that, George, because uh, it is something, you know, w w when we look at a rally car as a whole, we... we complete like it was watching um grand theft well, not grand theft auto what was it called the um <laughs> that film that was just out with about the guy right. the gamers who became racing right. drivers oh yeah it's really good but um but the, the dynamics of the way they have in the film they've they've brought the game experience of where you build the car mm. and you see every nut and bolt and and rod go into place in the car and they kind of build it around the driver um you, you take it for granted the whole and you forget about the actual science and the genius of something like the tyre mm -hmm. and the fact that a tyre requires equal amount of construction to actually find the right kind of mm -hmm. wire to stick the right kind of rubber or the yeah. and as you say the laminations and stuff like that something that I've genuinely not really thought much about but when I think about it now it's quite incredible that I, I kind of understand better why a car costs 500 grand now <laughs> when you think about the science that goes into something as simple as a tyre that lasts a couple of stages and gets um, recycled. Yeah. No, it, it, and George, just when you were saying there about, you know, 600 horsepower through these Group B cars, how they just managed to compound on 40-degree heat of, of yeah. Metropolis. The, yeah. And the rocks are so abrasive. Just, you know, in these cars, we had occasionally 530, 540, but suspension is so much more developed now. Um, oh, you know, it, well, it, they're, they're, 
there's there's another story, David. The the, the what the suspension? These are these are passive suspension struts mm. that are just basically all, the, the way they work. It, it's almost science fiction, and and uh, it, it would appear to be to some extent a slightly black art. Yeah. Uh, there are some people that are just absolute gurus at it. And the yeah. dynamics of it, I've, I've always wanted to, you know, if I, if I had the wherewithal, I would I would buy a car and I would take it to to Riger, to Olin's, to whoever it would be, the, these fantastic companies and say, I want my road car with springs so soft that I don't feel any bumps, but I want it to handle like a rally car, you know, like perfectly like a race car. And, and they can do it. They can do it. What you've got to understand is that the rally cars, those WRC cars on Acropolis Rally are running with springs that no road car would have because they're too soft. Now that that is completely counterintuitive. Um, no, and, totally. and, and just just yeah, just to un- underline that if you see the cars driving out from a stage and have a, you'll have seen it, David, and I'm sure you'll have, you'll have appreciated it. You see the car coming out of a stage, say up onto an asphalt road, and they're just driving up slowly in first gear. The bodywork doesn't move. The wheel will go up, a, you know, uh, 300 mil on the left hand side, drop down 150 mil on the right hand side, and the body stays absolutely perfect. And and that's at 10 miles an hour, no bumps, no thumps. The dynamics of it are just honestly like a cheetah utterly when it runs and yeah. its just, head doesn't move. They are they are the the even better than a cheetah. Well, that's it. I'd, I'd say those suspension guys have actually outdone nature. That's how good it is. It's just. <laughs> It's true, I though. They're, I do want that to evolve they're, they're down magicians. into the road cars because they, they are magicians. The uh, yeah. potholes in the UK at the moment make every car yeah. feel like it's got no suspension whatsoever. George, have you ever fitted um, competition suspension to to a road car? I've got it. I've got it on right now, David. I've, I've put it, <laughs> have you? Obviously, I've obviously. got it on my. I've got it on my. I've got it on my Mini Cooper S. So I, I traded having a, a nice yeah. a nice new car that's all pleasant and lovely, and I. And I, I bought a, an, an even lovelier Mini Cooper S, which is about 10 years old. It's a diesel one, but I bought it for doing yeah. auto tests and road rallies. And I so what's it up, on? Uh, uh, sorry, what was that? What's it on? Oh, it's what, on, what's Tyne, it on? Tyne, Tyne, Tyne suspension. So my, my friends at uh, Tyne uh, do do mm. a, a lovely a lovely grade of suspension. So I got the, I got the nice stuff on it. Uh, but unfortunately, they cater for the, the road market and the road market wants the cars lower. So I've had to put this suspension up about as high as you could physically um, make keep it drivable to get it to very close to normal road ride height. And then I've set it as soft as I can. Uh, and it, also the springs that it comes with are a little bit stiffer than road cars, than normal road car springs. So I've not achieved what I wanted to achieve. They did offer to do that for me. But I really don't have uh, two or three thousand pounds to spend on new springs and a normal length shock absorber with a different set of dynamics, which they're pr- quite prepared to do for me. Um, it's just I don't really don't have the wherewithal to uh, to. So which um, way is it in the minute? Sort of is it more handling or comfort that you have at the moment? Um, uh, well, I've I've set it as soft as I possibly can to make the car as compliant as I can, Lisa, to to make it you know more like a, a rally car. But uh, unfortunately, the, the limits of that are such that it doesn't do it. But what it does do is it does it does handle phenomenally well. The the damping on it is superb. I've got it set. I, I set it. I set it very low to start with, and worked my way up, and then back down to the lowest setting that I could manage to make sure the car never wallows. So I got that incredible dynamic, um, so that I can I can make sure the car never hops at the back end, never crashes out at the front. It's just fabulous. So yes, I have fitted it to a road car, David, and it is wonderful. Fun setting. I've got I've got a fun setting on it, and I can just go in and adjust the clicks. Sadly, at the back to adjust the clicks, I've actually got to drop the shock absorber down to reach in and do it. But it just takes a, it takes five 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 minutes, and you can actually buy a little electronic adjuster for it. But I didn't bother. I could just imagine you on the way on on the way back from Sainsbury's, just pulling over and just <laughs> just adjusting the clicks, just for that. Yeah, wheel back 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 wheels off. Back wheels off, <laughs> jacket right up, drop the suspension down, a, 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 a couple of clicks up. That's it. That's the oh yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Doing the full test. Yeah, amazing. Brilliant. Um, on our schedule, I noticed David, you've um, posed the question: 
how non-hybrid Rally 1 cars could yeah. save in sports. Yeah, well, where are you going with this? It, it's a story we're obviously running on the site this week, and it's it's a really interesting one. Because obviously, we had Mohammed Ben Salim FA president with us in, um, in a, on the Acropolis Rally in Athens. And I think everybody knows what the position that M Sport is in right now uh, in, in terms of budget and what have you. They They are completely up against it. As a team, they used to before Rally One came, and probably actually before the Seventeen Cup. Go back ten years, they were used mm-hmm. to selling between sort of ten and fifteen uh, World Rally cars a year. Obviously, mm-hmm. there's some there's some profit, there's some margin in there, and it was that margin that was helping the team to build the budget for a, a WRC effort. That's all gone. They haven't mm-hmm. sold a single car this year. I think they sold one to Jordan Sudaridis last year. Um, but nothing this year, and and that budget isn't being filled anywhere else. The the demand mm-hmm. for Rally Two cars, there's so many Rally Two cars on the market now. Of course, they're still selling Fiestas, but not in anything like the volume that they were. Um, and the Rally Three car is is great, but the the pricing of that car kind of means that there's not there's not anything like the margin in those cars to to build mm-hmm. this budget. So, one of the things that we we talked to Malcolm and we talked to the other teams and to Mohammed about is. The potential for building a Rally One car, and then just taking a hybrid off it, um, which I thought mm-hmm. would be really complex and and would take lots of re-engineering. Given that these cars were engineered with hybrid in mind, um, but yeah. talking talking to the engineers, it's it's a case. Uh, no, you just undo those bolts, whip it out, um, <laughs> and j- job done. Obviously, you have to take the the motors and everything out as well. Uh, and just so take all of that out, replace it with some ballast, um, and that actually, gives you. Actually, a, an, would you have to, David? If you imagine that, what is it, hundred kilos, isn't it? Something like that. Yeah, you, you wouldn't. You, you wouldn't you have take to take it out. The power, the power loss would be offset by the weight loss. So you'd probably actually have. It, you'd probably actually have something would, quite close. Yeah. It would, but I think the only thinking with the replacing it with the ballast. So there's two ideas here. One idea is to get the reason we're not seeing Rally One cars in places like Ireland or Belgium or all of these the national hybrid, championships. Course, yeah. It's the hybrid, and and you have to when you bring these cars, there, there's a an onus and an expectation from each event that they'll bring um, an e an, an EV a hybrid uh, technician essentially to look after and make sure that all of the regulations um, are being adhered to by each event. So. There's a sort of level of bureaucracy there that very necessary, obviously, uh, to make sure that this thing is running safely um, on an event mm-hmm. where it's not designed to run. So that means that each event, each rally has to find more money, more budget to bring in these people and to put in these specific areas where the cars can be charged and everything. Um, so therefore, just get rid of that hybrid element um, and you can still have the spectacle of the Rally 1 car uh, on on national events, and that would then. I, I'm talking to Malcolm about it. Malcolm said, "You know, I'm not convinced it's a cost issue that's that's standing in the way of selling these cars because historically, as we've said, they've sold cars, and World Rally cars are expensive things. Um, but it is that it is that complex procedure of of trying to run the car. So you buy this incredible thing, and then where can we go? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, there's some events in Italy. The, you know, you can't say, right, I'm going to go Ireland this weekend, then I'm going over there, then I'm going to France, then I'm going to Belgium, then I'm going to Hungary, yeah. which you probably mm-hmm. could without the hybrid. Um, so it's it's a new initiative. It's something that's been talked about for next year. And it, it potentially, it could help keep M Sport in, in the championship. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. can, it, can it go back in just as easily? Because I'm, yeah. just, I'm, I'm just wondering... Um, here in the UK, um, the previous um, Prime Minister was very keen on making a lot of um, complicated changes to the car industry here. Basically, by 2030, wanted every single car that was in the UK, a new car that was being built, to not run on fossil fuels. Mm. And that is something that still hasn't been entirely addressed. Um, but if you're looking at a D de-greening a car effectively I mean it's not but mm-hmm. if, if you're looking at taking the hybrid out is that going to create problems potentially if you go to countries that are looking to only run the hybrid side of things so can this car have the, the hybrid put back into it is what I'm saying absolutely can and the the analogy is to go back to what was called the regional rally car go so again going back mm-hmm. probably yeah. 10 years where yeah. we had a 
you remember, George, we we had the World Rally yeah. car, which had all of the aero, the bigger restrictor, and then you yeah. had the regional car, which had less aero, smaller restrictor, but one car uh, suited both categories. So it it would yeah. essentially be be just that. Um, no brainer. So, yeah, for me, absolutely. And there, there was a lot of discussions about M Sport and about what Tanak does and and what happens with mm-hmm. with the British yeah. team next season. Talking to Malcolm, ultimately, right now, the focus is on staying where they are. Um, drivers are very much kind of secondary right now. They they have to. There's there's been times in the past where you could say that Malcolm's played this card and talked about not having the budget. One hundred percent. They do not have the budget now. You can see it in the team that they they are seriously struggling. Um, and they need they need to find a way forward. Uh, the great thing is that both Hyundai Motorsport and Toyota are enormously sympathetic. And they understand. Um, and, th- and this non-hybrid Rally 1 car is one very good example where the teams, I'm sure, would, would agree to kind of almost whatever Malcolm needs. Um, as a championship, yeah. we need three manufacturers. Um, yeah. And Minimum. commercially, it has to stack up, or M Sport will be gone. Yeah, yeah, this is it is an incredibly tough one. I, I quite like the idea of removing the hybrid and letting the car be a hundred kilos lighter. I think it's going to be cool. Yeah, but also, <laughs> yeah. also the fact is that you know the, the 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 whole dynamic of sustainable cars, the internal combustion engine, electric cars. It's still very much in the mix. It's very much changing. The, the people are throwing their weight behind electric at the moment. Um, Mm. And they've been forced, but only because they've been forced into it. The the yeah. the, the opportunity for sustainable fuels um, still exists, and the advantage of a sustainable fuel in an internal combustion engine is, of course, that you're taking half of your energy is from the air that 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 that, mm. that that surrounds the car. You know, you're not having to carry it all with you. A huge percentage yeah. of it is coming from the air. So, uh, and, and sustainable fuels, as, as our friends in Finland, you know, you, David, you've done a couple of articles yeah. on the fact that there are completely yeah. sustainable internal combustion fuels. And something I think that, that we in the championship have actually been running for quite a while, and nobody champions yeah. that. No, um, and I they don't, George. There are, yeah, it's, it's an odd thing. And maybe, maybe it's the balance against uh, food supply as well that, you know, again, if, if it started to go that way, would, there, you know, would we start to grow all our fuel rather than... Uh, grow food which means means that people go hungry and that's not a smart move either so it's a tricky no. one to balance but the but the bottom line is the rally is actually right at the front of 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 that uh, of that development i'm sure formula one is probably running the same fuel that we're running no um, they're, not. They're, they're, they're not as as far as i can see this is the real frustration for me is mm. that wrc mm. was the first championship to be 100 percent sustainable and we still are and you know, I didn't know some, this so exactly how's that how did, I not know how did you not know this this is my point mm. is that you know dirtfish here at dirtfish we banged this drum we did a whole bunch of stuff with p1 fuels with secto and with yeah. um lubricant in in finland but again you know there's just in in athens they were talking about tweaking technical regulations and there were there was a suggestion that well let's ban als um at the the turbo's anti-lag system which obviously it just fires fuel in to keep the turbo spinning and is and is massively hideously inefficient what does it matter it's not hurting anybody it's not it's sustainable fuel that we're burning needlessly it doesn't matter you know it literally we are not those rally one cars are not in any way harming the environment they are fully sustainably fueled so yes. let's just keep the als popping banging and keeping people entertained and let's just bang the drum that we're sustainable. I think you know there are there's there's evolutions and developments in yeah. that sustainable fuel. Um, and absolutely, P1 is completely on top of that. But for yeah. me, it does. It was actually quite refreshing in Greece that we do seem to be getting a kind of common sense approach to 2027. We know now for sure that we we will keep hybrid through 25 and 26. And it looks increasingly like hybrid and sustainable fuels will stay in 2027. So we won't have any, we're not going to, to EVs or anything like that. We simply can't. We can't continue to run rallies as we know them. And maybe there's a case that actually rallies need to evolve and change completely. And we need to readdress the endurance element. Do, is there still a genuine endurance element required when attention spans are 
restricted to approximately 2.7 seconds or something. You know, mm. we, we need to, to, to yeah. think about everything. Three clicks. But yeah. But for me, I don't see that electric is, is the future. Hydrogen possibly, but probably I would say 27, we're still too early um, for that. Yeah. I, I find this, um, this is one for the kids. It reminds me of the battle between VHS and beta in video. And VHS very much won the battle to be the main type of cassette that people used to watch films on. But Beta was the better system because it was yeah. smaller, it was more efficient. It was the one that everything in television was driven on Beta, um, Betamax yep. cassettes yeah. and not VHS. And it, it, I do wonder if it's been a marketing issue that basically somebody's got behind the electric campaign and, and as you say, marketed that better than the... The, the actual case for sustainable fuels is just, as you say, the drum needs to be heard if it's mm. being beaten. But but if nobody's really taking it up outside the sports or, you know, you have people that have their minds very firmly fixed that if it's motorsport, it's bad for the planet. It's not great. If, if you know, the, the green message is actually sold a little bit clearer on that. It should be on everything. It should be on every single piece of merchandise that's attached to anything, saying, you know, for a greener future or whatever. Absolutely. And once again, Lisa rallying, rallying at the very vanguard of that development. If it can work in a rally car in the environment we go into, it'll work in your road car down the street. Exactly. 100%. That's the point, George. Talk to P1. Yeah. And, you know, they, they say that they can put their fuel in our cars. And it works absolutely perfectly. Yes, yep. it's probably quite expensive, um, but it it's there and that, it's ready to go. That's just a case of volume, David, isn't it? As soon as, as soon as you start to make more of it, the price comes down. Yeah, and that's when yeah. the other conversations that people who are using road cars will have about, well, do I need to drive down to the shops or would it be better for me if I walked down or jumped on a pedal bike and, and, and made those shorter journeys and, and actually had a different idea about actually how we use our cars so that we can save it for fun and we can put the fun mode on our mini. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not be, sure about you be, that. You be careful with that social change yeah. stuff, Lisa. <laughs> the revolution starts here. I, I always I always <laughs> walk to the shops. I I always walk to the shops. and But but I live in Scotland where if it's not raining, then it's windy. If it's not windy, then it's raining. Um, and if it's neither of those things, then it's probably snowing. It's not particularly um, nice weather conducive to cycling everywhere or walking everywhere but I walk wherever I can you know and and I, I I believe in you know sustainable behavior I really do believe in sustainable behavior yeah I lived in London for 20 years and I I used my bike to go everywhere I cycled everywhere on my bike because it was quicker um the congestion in London was crazy and mad I can't I live out in the country now I can't use my pedal bike out here because no. the roads are too dangerous because yeah, we exactly. don't have any any cycling like the Dutch have this fantastic and the yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely anyway that's that's for another day um, I think we are done chaps Mr George Donaldson motorsport team boss David Evans head of media at dirtfish.com I think that was a great podcast who needs anybody else three is the magic number <laughs> indeed it was as ever an absolute pleasure I do hope we're getting invited to the 200th David yes I've got my dress that's a little bit of a little bit of a landmark. That's going to be a special one.